You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Hey, welcome back to another episode of The Spear. My guest on this episode is Kevin Mott. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us. Of course, John. Happy to be here. So I, I want to kind of give a shout out to, um, I guess, a couple of organizations and programs. We got linked up because you uh, were uh, a Downing Scholar. This, the Downing Scholars program run by the Combating Terrorism Center, which takes Army officers from, um, I guess, what we used to call the combat arms branches, maneuvers, fires, and effects uh, branches, and sends them to graduate school. Um, our former director at MWI was also the former director at the Combating Terrorism Center, so uh, he put you and I in touch. It's a cool program, a really good program, so I want to kind of, like I said, just give a shout out to them. And also to the Association of Graduates, um, the story that you're going to share with us is one that... Um, for which you were recognized uh, as a recipient of the Nininger Award, which is a, an award for, uh, for valor uh, given uh, by the Association of Graduates to a, to a West Point graduate. Um, AOG, the Association of Graduates, has been uh, really supportive of MWI at, 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 uh, at various times and, and done a lot for us. So I want to also um, kind of give them some a little bit of recognition. So you are an Army officer. Can you give listeners just maybe a little bit um, about your background, your military career? Absolutely, John. So I was uh, I started off my time in the Army as a, a platoon leader in 2nd Battalion, 327th Infantry Regiment, 1st uh, Brigade Combat Team, 101st Airborne Division, so, that, so the No Slack Battalion. Um, after that, I served as a striker company commander at Fort Bliss. Then I was a, a Downing Scholar. Uh, at Stanford, and then uh, a field grade at in the 82nd Airborne Division at Fort Bragg, and currently Battalion XO here at uh, Second Battalion Fourth SFAB here at uh, Fort Carson, Colorado. And when did you commission? So I uh, I commissioned in 2007, and so I arrived to the 101st in uh, in 2008. I uh, again became a platoon leader in the No Slack Battalion. I went with them to Samara, Iraq for just a, a few months. Was a platoon leader there kind of cut my teeth on, on leadership and, and deployment there, came back and then uh, did the full train up and deployed with them to Kunar province, Afghanistan in, in early, late April, early May, 2010. Okay. And the story you're going to share is, is from that deployment to Kunar province. Um, what was your job uh, when you deployed? 
So I, sh I showed up. I was the uh, reconnaissance platoon leader, the scout platoon leader for the battalion. So, you know, I was in charge of uh, three sniper teams, three recon teams. You know, my platoon sergeant and I. And uh, so I guess when we kind of started out the deployment, we were really just kind of bouncing all over the place, trying to help out the, the companies uh, as we kind of made contact with the enemy and, and figured things out. Um, it, so, so when we first arrived, again, this would have been May 2010, uh, things were getting pretty lethal, pretty kinetic in the area, uh, pretty good amount of fighting. Kind of one of the things that we, we figured out is that when new units rotated into the area, uh, the enemy would typically, in the first 30 to 90 days, would, would test them uh, through some some massing fighters, some larger scale attacks, some larger ambushes. So it was uh, definitely an interesting time. So you were uh, in Kunar province, and, and most people, when they picture Afghanistan, I think from whatever they've seen on TV, they picture this kind of rugged mountains. And Kunar very much was that sort of terrain. I wonder if you can just describe, though, how... Um, you know, how difficult it was, how, how rugged it was specifically in the kind of the very localized area that, that you were operating in. Absolutely. So it's kind of interesting terrain. The, the Kunar river Valley was somewhere around, you know, three, maybe 4,000 feet, kind of the baseline there. And then, so like m the majority of the fobs were, were kind of in the low ground like that. Right. But it, as soon as you left, uh, you're essentially completely surrounded by, by mountains on you know three or four sides so the the terrain anywhere was from you know fob joyce where we were kind of based at was it roughly three thousand feet thirty five hundred feet something like that but we would do these battalion air assaults or air insertions up to you know sometimes up to 10 or even eleven thousand feet so it was it was a essentially a river valley right the kuna river valley kind of running in the middle but then on all sides surrounded by mountains it would would were extremely rugged, like shale rock kind of terrain with with trees, uh, and again would go up to you know as high as ten or even eleven thousand feet. Okay, um, I want to kind of circle back to something you said just a minute ago, um, which was that the the Taliban would sort of increase their activity when a new American unit would um, cycle into the area of operations. Uh, can you kind of describe what that um, looked like in your experience? Sure. So uh, there were there were several deliberate operations that were planned in in Kunar province, or really kind of that that corridor, the N2KL, the uh, region of, of eastern Afghanistan, on a regular basis. So farther north of Kunar province, Fab Basket, Fab Bostic, up in in Nuristan, there was a, a ground movement. They would resupply a Fab Bostic one or, one or two times a month. And that was always a, a pretty significant uh, operation. The enemy would would try and disrupt uh, the supply convoy along the whole way, and, and we essentially secured it. So, you know, I'm coming into Afghanistan. My uh, Iraq deployment was was not super super kinetic, although I did get you know a ton of time going on patrols and stuff under my belt, so I knew what things were like. But really, not in a lot of uh, huge firefights or anything like that. So, really, our our first week. In Afghanistan, you know, is the the supply run up to Fab Bostic. So we had not even conducted our our, rip, our relief in place yet with the you know one seventy third uh, airborne brigade that we were swapping out with. So you know, had my platoon with some one seventy third guys securing part of our route up to uh, up to to Fab Bostic, uh, and you know, we're driving up, and the convoy is out of sight. 
and uh, uh, the other platoon that was with us from Alpha Company called later asking for some help because the road was blocked. And uh, two jingle trucks had broken down. Two civilian supply trucks had broken down. Uh, they were crashed together on this one-lane road and set on fire by the Taliban to essentially fix this this other platoon in place so they couldn't you know return to base. And so uh, my platoon drove up to to go help them uh, to figure out what was going on. And uh, I got out of the truck along with uh, one of my squad leaders, uh, Sergeant Brent Schneider, and Sergeant Randy Sellers, my RTO. And we walk up to see what's going on, and we're immediately kind of hit with PKM fire all around us. Thankfully, you know, none of us got shot at the time. I took like a, a ricochet or a rock to the back of the head and kind of cut my head open a little bit. But, uh, I mean, it was like game on. Uh, so it was a, a very interesting way to, to start the deployment as well as, uh, again, them, them testing us as, as soon as we first showed up, really. They saw a new patch and, and they were ready to, to kind of test us. Well, you know, I think it sounds like that really sort of set the tone for um, that deployment. It was it was going to be a fight. the The story that I asked you to share uh, on on this episode comes from kind of the tail end of the deployment, but I think it's important for listeners to know to have a little bit of context um, that you were wounded pretty severely uh, in the middle of the deployment. You were shot in the head. Um, I wonder if you can just tell kind of briefly what what happened. Sure. So uh, we were doing, you know, baton air assault, air exertion. Uh, and uh, it was this, this valley to the north, uh, the the Gaki Valley or Morawara, uh, just north of uh, Fab Joyce away. It's really kind of across the, across the river from Asadabad, the, the provincial capital, right, of Kunar province. So uh, I got intelligence that there was enemy massing in the village, specifically in the village of, or in the in the valley, specifically in the village of Dardem. Uh, so our battalion set up, you know, battalion uh, air assault, as well as a company kind of driving up the up the middle of the valley to go ahead and clear the village of Dardem. We had reports there were somewhere, you know, on the order of two or three hundred fighters, which was kind of a standard number for these larger deliberate operations that we would do, and. Uh, I was the, the, the recon platoon leader, as I described before. We got inserted first, dropped off at the wrong HLZ. We walked about three or four, probably about three kilometers with three 300-pound skedcos kind of, you know, walking through the land before time. I think the elevation was somewhere around, you know, 7,000 feet, carrying these skedcos through the mountains, you know, set up a, a small observation post, overwatching Dardam, and, uh, you know, the, the sun comes up, we kind of got in right as the sun was coming up and, uh, the, the deliberate operation starts, you know, the decisive operation starts driving down the valley and, uh, my platoon was pretty much surrounded. We were the most Eastern element. So the, the element that was furthest in the valley and we got attacked from something like nine positions from essentially, you know, 270 degrees around us, uh, accurate marksmen. PKM fire. Uh, they're trying to lob RPGs up at us too. Guys maneuvering to try and get as close as they could. Uh, I ended up getting uh, shot uh, in the head, and I fell off the the narrow ridge line that we were on. Uh, I was unconscious for about thirty minutes or so, and then had a was fortunate. Uh, I was able to. I woke up, crawled away to a tree. Uh, my platoon was still in contact the whole time. I know the 
we had some radio scanners with us and the, the Taliban were talking about trying to, to come grab me when it got dark. And uh, thankfully, about three hours after I was shot, uh, we had uh, PJs uh, come on station and uh, get lowered down to pick me up. Uh, to their credit, uh, they were in direct fire contact with the enemy the entire time. Uh, that they were lowered the, the PJ down. A guy named Josh Webster uh, got lowered down to, to come grab me and pick me up and then take me back uh, to first, you know, uh, the surgical team in Asadabad where they kind of cleaned my wounds. Uh, I ended up, uh, my, basically, a lot of my scalp was kind of falling off my head, but I had 50 sutures and staples to put my scalp back together, had a brain injury. Uh, when I fell off the ridge line, I, I rolled down the side for about 300 meters. Uh, I fractured four vertebrae in my back, uh, broke my leg, tore my labrum in the top of the back. So kind of a lot of things happened, I guess, John. But, uh, you know, thankfully I went back uh, to Fort Campbell, you know, received some, some really great uh, medical treatment there. And then, uh, was able to finagle my way into redeploying on the same deployment back to back to Afghanistan. Well, you know, to be wounded that seriously, get sent back to the U.S., recover sufficiently to then deploy again, rejoin your unit in Afghanistan is, to be honest, it's it's um, it's crazy. And um, you know, we're gonna get to uh, the this sort of story that I asked you to share. So I almost feel bad glossing over. This one, which in and of itself would, I, I think, make an exceptional exceptional episode uh, of the spear. But uh, when did you get back into Afghanistan? So, you know, I got shot June 27, 2010. And, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention uh, Staff Sergeant Eric Shaw was, was killed that day. He was actually one of my squad leaders uh, on my Iraq deployment. We were pretty close. He was posthumously awarded the, the Distinguished Service Cross for for carrying some Americans and some, some wounded Afghan soldiers to safety before ultimately, you know, being killed. And then Sergeant Thomas from our Bravo company as well was killed during the operation. But, um, so yeah, it took about five months of recovery to, to get back. I was, uh, very, very focused and kind of uh, obsessed about going back to Afghanistan because I knew I had some time. Uh, the doctors, uh, kind of laughed when I said that I wanted to go back, but it was something that I wanted to do. It was, uh, it was honestly, it was also pretty hard. Um, so, you know, I'm on rear detachment. Like I said before, almost the whole division was gone. The whole brigade was gone. So, you know, I didn't really have any friends back. Right. So I'm sitting on kind of rear detachment, healing up, getting better. And, uh, you know, the, the pace uh, did not slow down in country. So we had a lot of guys get wounded and a lot of guys get killed even after, you know, I was injured. So, it was kind of, it was very frustrating to me being on rear detachment, healing up, getting better, and just watching these memorial ceremonies come through, you know, all the time, these Eagle Remembrance ceremonies for guys that were, that were killed in country, and I'm just kind of hanging out in rear detachment. So uh, I was pretty focused on getting better. I would, looking back, I kind of rushed things, but I was able to get back in country before Christmas of, of 2010. So just really five-ish, five and a half months later. I was able to get back in country and, and kind of show up. Uh, my battalion commander, uh, who's now General General J.B. Val, wasn't really sure, you know, what, what to make of me. I was the, the night shift talk guy for about two weeks before uh, one of the company commanders uh, talked to him, and uh, I was made a, a platoon leader again, this time in, in, in HHC. So we had kind of a, a unique 
task organization in country at the time, our, our headquarters company actually had three rifle platoons assigned to it. So uh, it's not a normal kind of M2, normal organization, but, but in this case we had three rifle platoons uh, assigned to, to HHC uh, when we were in Kunar in Afghanistan. Okay, so let's jump forward to um, the story you're going to tell from Operation Strong Eagle 3. You know, some listeners that might sound familiar to because we had several months ago uh, an episode with a guy named Jason Pomeroy who shared a story from this same operation. I know you know him. He was also a platoon leader uh, in a different company within the battalion. Um, and I think th- something that's really important to point out is that, you know, if this was World War One or World War Two, a battalion might occupy uh, a section of the front lines that are, you know, at maximum a couple hundred or a few hundred meters wide. In Afghanistan, that was very different. A battalion could own a lot of battle space. I wonder if you can just kind of spatially describe what this operation looked like. As I understand it, you were in one valley and he was in a parallel valley? That's right. So, so this operation, Strangle 3, uh, took place uh, really, I mean, honestly, just about a kilometer or two from the, the border of Pakistan. He was going to objective, I think it was Sarbaroy Clay. I was going to objective called, or the town called Barwallow Clay, just north of that. So uh, it's kind of funny. I grew up in Charlie Company, which is Jason's, Jason's company that he was in. Uh, you know, I knew the NCOs there very well because, uh, like I said, I was on the Iraq deployment before and had better been the company XO for a little bit. But uh, so I knew everybody uh, quite well. So just to kind of bring everybody in for, for time. So this was was March uh, 2011. So we are, I mean, some of our soldiers were, were about two weeks or even a little less than two weeks out from uh, from redeploying, getting on a plane to go home at this point. So it was, uh, you know, not necessarily an ideal time to conduct this operation, but we're, we're essentially, so kind of, I guess, zooming out a little bit. When we first showed up to Afghanistan, you know, we were in these, these huge firefights, right? We did this Operation Strangle 1 where we had two guys get killed. I think over 10 guys get, get wounded, you know, to include myself. And we kind of felt like, uh, you know, we were going to be replaced by the 25th uh, Infantry Division of Brigade out of there, 3rd Brigade. And we were kind of hoping to, to buy some space and time for them when they, when they flew into country, right? So we're conducting Strong Eagle 3 in, in late March 2011, kind of the lead up to the fighting season. Part of the thought process was that we could disrupt uh, QZR, uh, who's kind of the head insurgent leader for, for Kunar province. Uh, the objective I went to was actually his, his hometown where he grew up. If we could disrupt the insurgent network in late March into April 2011, that would buy some time for the the 25th ID, you know, third brigade, to to kind of learn the AO a little bit before they had insurgents kind of kind of massing on their flanks, if you will, at, at each of their cops, right, and, and, and testing them. So the timing was was probably ideal, and that we would buy time and space for a 25th ID, but probably not you know, ideal and that, you know, soldiers are looking forward to going home and not looking forward to doing this very large battalion operation, uh, right before they fly home. So, so Charlie company was on the southernmost objective, uh, in a Valley, there was a ridgeline between us where there was uh, Bravo company and the scouts. And then I was on the, in the Valley, just on the North side of that, that ridgeline there with uh, headquarters company. Uh, so you've so, got a company on a ridgeline and then one on either on, e- on the valley on either side. Correct. And then we actually okay. had our, our alpha company as well, a few kilometers to the north. So kind of, 
you know, at that battalion level, the mission analysis conducted showed that, you know, there was a platoon or two of enemy fighters that would take, you know, 12 to 24 hours to, to reinforce the enemy in the valleys that, that, that Jason and I were at. So they stuck our alpha company a few kilometers to the north, kind of on the planned infiltration route of the enemy to go ahead and disrupt any reinforcements. So like the, the thought process was to try and, you know, isolate the problems that we had in these two valleys. Again, I think the enemy assessment going into things was two to 300 fighters spread across uh, both, both valleys there. And essentially what these two valleys function as is, is kind of like a home base. Uh, and, and I knew uh, Jason's objective kind of ended up being like, uh, you know, I guess for the, the military listeners, it's almost like a 30th AG, like a reception, right? Like you show up, they had, you know, quite a bit of material and equipment there. My objective had a lot of uh, ammunition and rounds. I knew uh, Jason's objective had a lot of, uh, of ammunition as well, but also like, hey, welcome to the Taliban. You know, here's your chest rack. Here's your AK. Here's some mags, right? I know we had like tons of sleeping bags on my objective, recoilless rifle rounds, mortar rounds, RPG rounds, stuff like that. So it was a, a, to an extent a safe haven because we never went that, that deep into these valleys like ever. Uh, and it was also... Uh, kind of like a, a transit point, I guess, you know, like once you, you cross from Pakistan and Afghanistan, this, this kind of area was, was, it seemed like a lot of times their, their first stop that they would make and kind of arm themselves and then and move out from there. Okay. So what was the, um, the mission that you briefed to your platoon? So, so I briefed that we were going to kind of clear, uh, uh, Barawala Calais really to disrupt the insurgent network in, in, in Kunar province. So, uh, again, the, the, the kind of the macro thought process was to buy some space and time, uh, for the unit replacing us so that they can, they didn't really have like their own strong little one, right? Like they had some kind of more time to, to figure things out. Um, so really just brief my guys that we're going to go down and, and clear Barwell Clay. My platoon was the, was the decisive operation, right? Uh, for the, for the clearance and kind of much like, uh, Jason's company's plan, right? So, so we had three platoons with us. Um, we were gonna have one platoon, a second platoon led by uh, John Ferris, stay uh, on top of the mountain to secure the high ground. So we we kind of figured out through all these operations that if you didn't own the high ground, you're you're gonna be in 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 bad shape. So we left a platoon on the on the high ground, kind of where we landed at this HLZ at like you know something like eight eight or nine thousand feet. And then my platoon, which was third platoon, and uh, Greg Hom in first platoon, the the two of us would would kind of lead the clearance of this valley, and we would essentially, you know, leapfrog these little uh, sets of calots, these 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 mud homes, and these little village clusters, and kind of clear our way through the whole valley of of all insurgents. And you know, we assumed we would find some some weapons and arms and stuff like that as well. So we destroy those. So. So for much like Jason, you know, for this operation, we had uh, dogs were a part of it. We had EOD with us. We had a, a PSYOPs team with with speakers to play messages. Um, you know, we had a lot of enablers with us to kind of assist us with this clearance operation. How long was the operation supposed to take? So it was planned for three days. Uh, it ended up being closer to, to 10 days uh, overall. But, uh, but yeah, we were pretty confident that we could clear all the village clusters and the areas around them in about three days, but it ended up taking, taking longer than that. Did you meet, um, pretty stiff resistance early on? Uh, 
Uh, so, so not not right away. So it was it, it was interesting. You know, we we landed. Period of darkness. Get off the helicopter. Set up security. Right, the whole company. You know, landed over time. Um, I was up on, you know, different radio nets. We heard a, a broken transmission on the the battalion net about casualties on Charlie Company's objective. So if you listen to Jason's story, it wasn't his platoon. It was a, a different platoon ran into uh, a significant amount of contact, really just kind of right off their drop zone. They ran into a, a few guys that were hiding in the trees and, and ended up getting uh, in a firefight where some guys ultimately, some U.S. soldiers were ultimately, ultimately killed there. So we heard like a, a broken transmission about that. I, I shared that with my team, uh, with my platoon, uh, to, to make sure they're aware that there was obviously enemy in the area. But, uh, you know, when stuff like that happens to another company on a mission, you hear it, you acknowledge it, you put it out to your team so everyone's aware, but you're really focused on what you're going to do, right? So, so we kind of we kept it in the back of our minds just as a warning, but we we didn't dwell on it. We just kind of moved out to get ready to start start the mission. So, when did your platoon uh, first make contact? So it it was kind of interesting. So we were clearing these these village clusters. You know, we, we walked down from the HLZ down, you know, like a, a thousand feet or so to get down to these village clusters and started clearing them. Uh, there were still at night, still dark. Uh, so we started at night, but it ended up transitioning to day. So we really didn't okay. make contact for probably the first, you know, 12 hours of the operation or so. We walked down, start clearing things. Uh, we had a lot of assets uh, on station. So we had uh, fixed wing jets, right? We had helicopters on station. Kind of as we as daylight came, they saw a lot of women and children leaving the area. Uh, so, what we found out in this area is that if if women and children were walking out of the valley, that was typically a, a sign that things were going to get very, uh, very kinetic, very lethal, uh, big firefight coming up. But you know, as the sun came up and kind of started getting lighter, there was really no no contact uh, on on our objective. Things were pretty quiet. Um, there were a few, uh, women and children that stayed back in a few of the homes. Uh, they said that, you know, all their, their husbands, their family members were day workers in Jalalabad, which was, you know, a pretty ridiculous story because Jalalabad was a, a significant distance away and there was no way to drive out of the valley. Uh, just kind of a, a fanciful story. So there, there were no men in any of these homes, right? So it's a weird feeling kind of, kind of getting into this. Um, and then I want to say it was sometime around noonish. Uh, the weather got bad, right? The, the cloud ceilings dropped, uh, visibility got, got a lot worse and essentially all the, the, the supporting assets we had, the fixed wing aircraft and the rotary ring helicopters had, had to go off station because of the weather. So probably about 10 minutes after the, the, the weather rolled in, the, the assets went off station. They, they left us, uh, because they, you know, they couldn't see anything. They couldn't fly. The, the risk to them was too high. And sure. about, 10 minutes after that, I remember standing, you know, outside of a collat. I heard a couple loud booms, which sounded like the Barrett going with the scouts and then some more small arms going. It sounded like Biko on the ridgeline and then just kind of our valley really er erupted with fire uh, kind of all at the same time. So, you know, rounds started coming pretty close to machine gun rounds started coming pretty close to the, to the clot that I was in. And, and it, so at this time to kind of, I guess, set the stage a little bit, my platoon was, was spread a little bit. So we had kind of a, we broke down into two sections, essentially a lead section, uh, led by, uh, 
at the time, Staff Sergeant uh, off Rene Rachaga, and then a trail section with my weapons squad leader, and also my acting platoon sergeant, uh, Sergeant uh, Kellis Richardson. So the idea was that, you know, the lead section would move while under cover of our, you know, machine guns, they would get set and then the trail element would essentially collapse down on them. And we just kind of bound like that, you know, uh, uh, bounding overwatch just to make sure that we were as, as safe as possible. So now that things have sort of kicked off, um, did you have a sense where the incoming fire was, was, was coming from? No, it was, it was really disorienting because it was really, it felt like it was coming from everywhere. So it was coming from across the valley. It was coming from, from four of us in lower elevation. And it felt like there's some rounds coming from, from really our, our rear kind of up the mountain. It was, it was very confusing at first. And as things kind of progressed, you know, we're in a firefight. I was with the, the trail section at the time because I was taking an inventory with the EOD guys of, of all the, the munitions that we were finding on the objective, right? So we're finding tons of recoilers rifle rounds, tons of RPG rounds, tons of mortar rounds, you know, ammunition, all these, all these different things. And uh, I got, I heard a, a broken radio transmission on my platoon net uh, stating that they had uh, a couple casualties. And so you know, trying to, trying to gather more information while also balancing, you know, letting the, the situation develop a little bit, you know, if, if my lead section took some casualties, we'll kind of we'll let them handle things, make sure that they, you know, win the, the 10 second gunfight, right. So the, the, when the initial contact, uh, in order to kind of set conditions so they can call up and, and feed me in on the situation. Right. Uh, so, so essentially what happened was, uh, the lead section was, was moving forward, uh, with some ANA counterparts, uh, as the weather came in, it actually started to rain, right? And uh, the ANA uh, with my lead section dropped dropped their rucksacks and pulled out their cold weather gear to put on, so they di- they didn't get wet. Uh, Sergeant Arachaga, again the the leader with the 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 lead section there, kind of ran forward and and was yelling at them to to pick up their rucks and keep moving. And once they cleared the collats, they could put on their rain gear. And kind of that's really when the the main volley of fire started. So, so unbeknownst to me at the time, uh, the Afghans and in my lead section were crossing a draw, and Sergeant Arachaga ran forward and was yelling at them. And the enemy, you know, obviously was looking for a leader, and uh, you know, let the initial volley of PKM fire go, and uh, shot Sergeant Arachaga in the Arachaga in the lower the lower back, kind of just below his his body armor plate. Uh, Sergeant Trim, one of my team leaders, uh, ran forward when he saw what happened, grabbed Sergeant Arachaga by his, uh, his body armor and kind of began dragging him back to cover. Sergeant Trim, he got shot actually in his forearm, uh, while he was pulling Arachaga back. Dude was a stud, just switches hands, grabs Arachaga's body armor with his, his non-injured arm and, uh, you know, pulls him, pulls him back to, to cover. So I'm with the, the trail section, you know, with my uh, weapon squad leader and Sergeant Arachaga he had just been shot. Or my team was just been shot with the lead section. And we're talking back and forth about the, the situation. So we end up, uh, we decided like, you know, move, move to their location, right? So, so um, there was still a pretty high volume of fire going on. So the enemy was engaging, you know, the, the known position. So even though they, we all, took cover they, they couldn't see us they're still suppressing our location and we were shooting back obviously it was still hard to identify where they were at just 
They didn't really use tracers, so you could really only see muzzle flashes. So it was hard to determine where the enemy was. And, and they were also very well dug in. Uh, they had a, a defense planned. And uh, so we, we and it was me and my RTO. So like, hey, Kalen, his name is Kalen Waite, so I called him KWOW was his nickname. So like, hey, KWOW, we're, we're going to go right over here, link up with uh, the machine guns, and then we're going to go help out. And we ran out of the clot. It was you know very steep, kind of running uphill, shell rock again. So we kind of had to scramble on our, our hands and our feet. And we're getting shot at in the process. And, you know, I got up higher to where I could take cover for a second and then kind of ran down this this muddy dirt path to where the, the machine guns were to kind of link up with everybody there. Uh, Sergeant Richardson had, had already run down uh, with our medic and another NCO to go help uh, Arachaga and uh, Sergeant Trim, who were still receiving effective PKM fire and RPG fire. And and you still don't know exactly where that fire is coming from, or is it is the picture starting to become a little bit clearer? So at this point, we were taking fire from across the valley to our south, taking fire below us in elevation, uh, relatively close by to the south, taking machine gun fire from the the west, and then to our north uphill, we were also being engaged and suppressed by enemy and, and machine gun fire from there as well. So wow. so more or less three different directions. So really, the only place we weren't getting shot out from was off to my, off to my east, where where first platoon was, and they were in a, a very very similar situation. They had a couple casualties where, where they were at, and they were also in a, a pretty significant gunfight with the enemy who were who were around them. Um, so so kind of bring us back to to third platoon, you know, where I was. I linked up with. Uh, Sergeant Barley, one of my guys with the machine guns and was talking with Sergeant Richardson, who was with the, the two wounded soldiers that we had. And, uh, they, they were not in a good place. They were the guys that were there in the initial gunfight or had shot a lot of ammunition. were kind of running low. Uh, the guys that went to reinforce them, brought some additional ammunition with them to kind of help out, but they were, they were not in, in a good spot. Uh, and had two casualties, right? So, so we called up the the nine line for these guys, uh, and kind of over time, we kept taking more casualties. And I had, you know, my battle roster numbers. I was just like ticking names off this list, and it was like, it was it was just <laughs> really disheartening at the time, John. It was like I'm checking this list off. It's like almost all my NCOs, right? So, you know, Sergeant Trim is shot, Aaron Chaga shot, uh, Sergeant Richardson took shrapnel from an RPG. You know, Sergeant Sizemore took uh, shrapnel from RPG and, and spall from machine gun rounds hitting like right in front of his face. Um, you know, I'm like, oh shit, like going through this list and I really didn't have a whole lot of NCOs who weren't, you know, injured in some way. Uh, How much time has passed by this point since you took, since you first took contact? This is probably about an hour or so now. Um, okay. And uh, so my medic ran down there as well, a guy named Jameson Linskog. Uh, Jameson ran down there, checked on Irachaga, checked on Trim. Uh, so at the time, at the time, Sergeant Trim uh, basically told my medic to go away. He was fine, and you know was launching forty millimeter HE rounds at the enemy troop on the line, and just trying to keep everybody motivated at the time. Kid is was killing it, right, crushing it. Um, he goes to check Irachaga. He's his wounds are dressed well, and then you know also some Afghan casualties. So my medic went and treated these Afghan casualties as well. One of my team leaders, a uh, guy named Sergeant Mendez, was was treating an Afghan soldier when he took two PKM rounds to the chest. Uh, 
thankfully his his body armor stopped both uh, machine gun rounds and, and he was okay obviously bruised he sat sat up immediately after getting shot and then returned fire so my medic um specialist linsgog ran and essentially sat right where sergeant mendez got shot and and continued to work on this afghan who was who had a couple gunshot wounds and was injured uh Jameson was continued to work on this uh, wounded Afghan soldier until he was shot. I uh, would think, you know, by a, a PCAM round, really right above his side body armor plate, kind of in his uh, his armpit. So he was he he was shot. Uh, there was there was no exit wound. So again, this is about an hour in. Just to kind of review where we're at, Sergeant Arachaga was shot in the lower back by a PCAM, no exit wound. Sergeant Trim was shot in the arm. Uh, kind of the forearm through and through, he's okay. My medic, Specialist Linskog, uh, was shot uh, just really in his armpit uh, with no exit wound. And I had uh, Sizemore and Richardson both with with shrapnel on their body. Um, so it was it was this definitely not a good situation at all. The that element was was not real mobile, and you know we had called up in Highline and kind of continued to update as we took, uh, additional casualties. Um, you mentioned, you, you mentioned that the, um, that the weather had gotten bad and that the aerial assets had all had to, uh, had had to leave the area. How concerned were you when you're calling in these nine lines that it might be difficult to get a medevac bird into you? I definitely had some concerns. Uh, but one of the things Orbitalian always did is whenever we did these big operations, we always requested PJ's to forward stage, right? So, so I knew that we had two, uh, you know, HH-60s out of Fob Joyce, which was a five-minute flight away, with PJs just sitting and waiting for the call. So I knew that there were some casualties on the other objective. Uh, you know, they had flown there, I guess, uh, and, and helped them out. Uh, but uh, so what I didn't realize at the time was that I think one PJ bird already had taken rounds and couldn't fly anymore. So that the second PJ bird was was actually. Uh, Infilling to our location when it also uh, when it also began to take rounds. So essentially, this PJ bird, you know, flies in. We see uh, it come to a to a hover. It was a single ship, which is unusual uh, for them. They usually fly in two ship, but the other bird had taken rounds and was was you know not mission capable anymore. So a single ship. We see. I'm watching this this. This PJ stands, uh, you know, at the door of the aircraft. He's about to kind of begin to lower himself down to us, and the the aircraft just gets raked with pecan fire. So it was definitely a low a low moment seeing this medevac aircraft show up on station, get hit with pecan fire, and then and then fly away without our casualties. You, you know, because we have guys that that you know they're their status is declining. Um, yeah. It's the golden hour, right? I mean, the, the, yeah. the golden hour, you're right, John. Yeah. yeah. And, and we're not making it. Uh, so before the aircraft arrived, uh, special Linskog, my medic, he fought for probably about 30 minutes before he, he passed. But, uh, he told, uh, one of my squad leaders, uh, certain size more that he couldn't fight anymore and that he was sorry. And, uh, and he died. Uh, so, you know, we've got, one USKA mimetic um, uh, who, who's dead at this point, right? And several other casualties. Uh, and so we're definitely not sitting in a good place. And just the, the morale drop across 
the entire platoon, you know, when this, the one medevac aircraft that finally shows up, flies away was, was pretty, pretty disheartening, obviously. Uh, fortunately, a little while later, we had, uh, uh, just big army medevac come in. Uh, thankfully the, the situation at that time, it was probably, I don't know, uh, 30 or 45. It's hard to remember exactly because so much was going on and, and time kind of, kind of feels like the pace changes, you know, when it happens. Um, but uh, Big Army Medevac shows up later and, and picks everybody up. So Sergeant Urchaga is alive. Sergeant Trim is alive. Sizemore and Richardson, the guys from Shrapnel, decide to stay. They don't want to leave. Sergeant Mendez, who you know, took two rounds to his, his front plate, he's okay. He wants to stay too. Uh, so, you know, I was thankful to be surrounded by these phenomenal non-commissioned officers and soldiers who, who decided to, to stick it out. Sergeant Trim actually decided, tried to stay um, uh, and, uh, had to, the medic was, was begging him to, to leave with them, you know, because he had a gunshot wound to his, to his arm, but, uh, he, he finally agreed to leave. Uh, I think they left and they actually came back a second time because we, you know, Sergeant, Sergeant Linskog or sorry, Specialist Linskog was, was, was killed and, you know, carrying her remains, of one of your fallen teammates, you know, in the mountains is, is a pretty brutal endeavor just to move, uh, move a body like that. And so we were able to get them to come back and, and pick up his remains as well. Uh, might've been the same when they picked up the wounded as well, but it was, it was tough because, you know, we had a bunch of guys that were, were hurt guys were wore out and, you know, we were able to get his, his remains out thankfully, but it was a, it was a pretty brutal situation. Uh, thankfully, the weather got better. Uh, we ended up dropping a lot of bombs, suppressing a lot of enemy positions, and killing a lot of enemy with with uh, attack weapons team and scout weapons teams. Right, so Apaches and Kiowas came back on station, and we just uh, you know kind of engaged all noon, like late suspected positions, and we were able to kind of kind of change the tide of the battle for that that first day of what ended up being nine or nine or ten. And kind of my my element collapsed back. We we reunited and you know kind of conducted a strong point defense in a in some abandoned collats there, and that kind of kind of ended the first day. Ended, you know, what was clearly a really tough day, a long day of hard fighting. Um, you know, especially given your your medic had unfortunately been killed. You had a couple guys wounded and medevaced out, and other couple guys who were wounded but stayed there on the ground. Can you talk a little bit about what you kind of perceived your role to be as uh, as a small unit leader uh, on a day like that? Yeah, absolutely. So I kind of saw my role at that time as a small unit leader is, is right. So so you are as a platoon leader, you're the link to your higher headquarters, right? To your your company, your battalion. And, and your ability to, to paint the picture for your commanders, right, at echelon kind of helps your your platoon, helps your your soldiers get what they need, right? So, you know, throughout this whole time, I was talking to my, my company commander who was actually on the objective with us, telling him what was going on, you know. Uh, it's, it's also a balance, right? So first platoon, who was also on, in our valley, had casualties. You know, remembering Jason, right, in Charlie Company and the other objective was also in contact at the same time. Bravo Company on the ridge line between us was in contact at the same time. So if you can imagine, you know, we had artillery that could support us. We had fast movers. We had, uh, you know, fast movers, fixed wing jets. We had uh, helicopters. 
But when you have the entire battalion, right? So you had, you know, three companies, trolley company on the Valley to the South, Bravo company and the scouts on the ridge line and HHC in the Northern Valley, all competing for assets, all taking casualties, all in these huge firefights at the same time, you know, you're the, the number of assets you have uh, is, is pretty becomes quickly limited right across you know these essentially three companies that need help at the same time so so platoon leader needs to a you, you know talk higher paint the picture to, to fight for those assets b understand the bigger picture that you may not get what you need right away and, and c like john kind of one of the things i learned is part of leadership is presence right just just being there with the guy sharing the hardship sharing the the risk is an important piece right and so so when you're if your soldiers trust you they know you you know, it's happy. They're happy to see you there, and it's part of it is keeping a steady hand, right? Staying calm. You know, talking calmly and slowly on the radio brings a lot of clarity and and does bring uh, you know some level of of peace to the situation and kind of calm things down a little bit. Okay, so you've now collapsed your platoon back, uh, consolidated at these empty collapses. It's the end of day one. Uh, you're kind of winding down from from a tough fight that day. Um, also starting to prepare for, you know, the, the next day and the day after that, cause you know, this is going to be a multi-day mission. Um, what's kind of going through your head, uh, that evening? Uh, just making sure that everybody's okay. You know, talking with my NCOs to see where everybody's heads at. They were all solid. Just making sure the soldiers understood what was happening and, and could kind of deal with what was there, what was going on. I was actually fortunate the the battalion chaplain was with us. So he was able to talk to guys and, and he and his chaplain assistant kind of made some jokes and stuff to, to kind of try and uh, bring some relief to the situation. Everybody was pretty worried. Everybody was pretty nervous. Uh, unfortunately, most of the soldiers had been in somewhat similar situations in the past. So they were kind of used to it, you know, stress inoculated a little bit. It's kind of the way Jason, Jason put it uh, in his podcast. But, uh, but yeah, it was, it was challenging. It was, like I say it was easy at all, John, but everybody knew that, you know, there's only one way out, right? And that was, you know, the end of the valley to the to the exfil point. So you know, everybody kind of did their best to keep their head in the game. So we're going to jump forward to uh, day three. Was there anything that happened, though, uh, on the second day? The second day, we were on firefights off and on, but we were strong pointed, so it wasn't that big of a deal. But but the third day, we were going to move to the, the third set of, of Kalats. So we did this during the, the daytime. Uh, the terrain was, was super, super nasty. And we had some incidents of guys moving at night where they would fall and just start tumbling and, and not stop. Uh, thankfully, the, the worst situation, we actually another soldier caught the guy that was falling on the side of the mountain and, uh, and stopped him. But he was, it was extremely steep. So we ended up conducting a lot of these operations during the during the daytime just because it was easier for us to, to maneuver to an extent. Uh, but we also assume risk by doing during the day and, and having the enemy watching as well, although they were still active at night. So so day three, we're, we're moving to a set of clots during the day. Um, and before we started, uh, my lead team leader, Sergeant Z, was like, sir, I don't want to lead the way because I don't want to get anybody else killed. So you know, kind of to your point before everybody was, was kind of on edge and, and pretty nervous about things. Um, but he you know, said, Hey, Sergeant Z, we got to keep moving. You know, I'll come with you. No big deal. And, uh, we moved out. So it was again, the same kind of concept. We had one section with the machine guns, 
strong pointed at the Kalats. So we're overwatching the movement of the lead section, moving to the next set. Uh, I was moving uh, just behind the lead fire team. And uh, we got probably halfway. So probably, you know, the distance between the clots were probably 400 meters. Uh, we made it probably about 150 or 200 meters. And then the valley just erupted in fire again. Uh, it was really disorienting being down uh, the side of the mountain kind of behind the lead fire team because it, you know i had a set of peltors on i was looking around i was super confused because it sounded like it was coming from everywhere and it, it essentially was um you know it's 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 funny because like pcam pcams make a different sound right like a higher pitch than standard machine guns so i heard all this pcam fire at first and i was like okay like it's not so bad like it's like relatively effective on us moving but they're also shooting at the guy strong pointed so that's okay but some of those pcam is also the afghans with us and then i got i quickly realized that the afghans with us had 240s right so they had u.s weapon systems not not uh you know ak's and pcam so so all that fire was actually enemy fire i thought oh shit um you know we're uh this is this is not the best situation but we got to keep pushing so Sergeant Z was, was ahead of me. And he, when he, when we made contact, he kind of bounded forward a little bit and I, I couldn't see exactly where he was at. Uh, and, and bottom line, they, they kept moving, we kept moving. Uh, and then they found themselves at the very bottom of the valley. They had like missed the set of collots, you know, unfortunately by like 30 or 40 meters and just went down and they were basically pinned down. There were guys higher in elevation above them that were shooting down on them with PKMs there were some guys down the low ground with them. They actually uh, threw a hand grenade and killed, you know, one or two insurgents uh, because they were literally that that close to them, and they were asking for help. So I was trying to talk to them on the radio. We were behind the, using this big rock for cover, uh, and I remember he's sitting on this ledge, and I was talking with Sergeant Z and and telling him that we're about to move. And I just think in my head, like, man, like I really don't want to go back to the hospital again and get shot, like that was not fun, not, uh, a great experience and just kind of sighed and got up and, and started running down, running down the side of the mountain to kind of get to a position where we could be better, better see the enemy and, and better suppress him so they could kind of disengage and, and move to the collats. So it's kind of interesting. I had me and my RTO and my FO and also the chaplain was with me that day and the chaplain's assistant. So kind of a, a motley crew running down to help, help this, this lead fire team that was uh that was in in contact that day uh we ran down there suppressed the enemy positions which allowed that first fire team to to enter the clots and kind of establish a foothold and then the rest of the section flowed down sergeant sizemore was was with me that day and we, we ended up clearing the 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 clots and and strong pointed again uh the weather throughout this whole 10-day operation was was nuts it was like super clear beautiful blue skies you know you're in the mountains this kind of picturesque environment where there's people you know trying to kill you at the same time then the weather would come in and it would go from rain to sleet even to snow it was it was nuts so you know the weather got bad for a little bit got better and then we just started dropping bombs all over the place and uh thankfully suppressed the enemy uh, on day three we moved forward successfully secured these collats uh, and then had the rest of the platoon kind of link up with us. And that really kind of was the, the big end for day three, the, the kind of enabler, the fire support that we received, the, both from helicopters and as well as uh, um, these fixed-wing jets really kind of 
broke the the enemy's wall that day and that kind of ended the, the majority of the fight in day three yeah yeah the, you know it it strikes me how important something like the weather is um because on 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 day three when the weather was clear and you could call in air support um you know it's no longer a fair fight um you know that's just such a huge advantage uh for friendly forces on day one when you couldn't do that it seems like it was a pretty evenly matched fight did it feel like that absolutely yeah there was again a significant number of fires in the valley they knew the train very well they had a lot of dug-in positions that, that we found you know with these like sections keyholes and stuff spread out and and they were they were ready for somebody to show up eventually so it was it was challenging like you said right you're kind of fighting a fair fight you know we have a bunch of U.S. and Afghan soldiers with with small arms. We have a bunch of you know enemy Taliban also with small arms. Except they know where all the defendable terrain is. They know uh, where all their fighting positions are set up. You know, and they're they're kind of really we're ready to go. Um, so it was definitely a challenging fight, and and thankfully you know with the help of the rotary wing aircraft and the fixed wing aircraft, we were able to kind of win win those days and and kind of. And, and end things. So that was, was definitely needed. Well, I really appreciate you telling, um, I guess a number of stories, but especially focusing kind of on, on, on a, a couple of days of that, that one mission operation, strong Eagle three. Um, how many more days total were you out on this operation? The rest of the, the, we spent six more days in that six, we spent six total days in that Valley. So we had three more days after what I just described. It was a lot of the same, you know, uh, machine guns suppressing while we ran in between uh, village clusters, you know, and then kind of the last day for exfiltration, we had to walk to the other side of the valley to, to, to leave. So we, you know, walked downhill at night, crossed, went it being like a, a belly button deep river, uh, climbing up the far side of some terraces before we finally got, we finally left on day six and we got repositioned to a different valley and spent the last, uh, the last uh, couple days there, so day nine or day ten. Okay. Um, can I ask about uh, the guys that that you had medevaced uh, who were wounded? So we found out that after Sergeant Arachaga was was medevaced, and he went to uh, the surgical team at Asadabad there, which is you know, ironically where where I was medevaced to when I was shot back in back in June. This would have been uh, March 29th, two thousand eleven. Uh, he, he made it through his first surgery and then unfortunately, uh, uh, crashed, uh, and, and died, uh, there. So kind of at the end of the day for the platoon, we had, uh, two US KIA and something like, I want to say six or so, six to eight guys that were, were wounded as well. Sergeant Trim was seriously injured, but the, the rest of the guys were, were more shrapnel and stuff like that. So it was, it was less, less serious thankfully. Good. Um, you know, just from the stories that you've shared, clearly the fighting was intense and, and I guess it's fortunate that, that you didn't have more casualties than I am, of course, you know, sorry for the, the soldiers that you lost. Um, you know, going back, you said the purpose of this operation was to give a little bit of breathing space for the, uh, the guys from the brigade from the 25th that were going to be coming in and replacing you. Were there indicators right away that, um, that, that, that you'd been able to achieve that? Or did you, um, did you have a sense that you did accomplish that, that mission? 
I think we did. So I think things in the in the Kunar River Valley kind of calmed down a little bit. You know, we we had kept in contact with some of the guys from the the twenty fifth. Um, so so our first battalion, right? So I was in second battalion three three twenty seventh no slack. Our first battalion was in the Pesh River Valley, and they ended up uh, closing it down at the end of their deployment and, and withdrawing most of the U.S. forces out of there. I know that the 25th came in. I think they definitely had some breathing space in the Kunar River Valley where we were at, but the the Pesh ended up getting real bad again, so they had to, to put forces back into the Pesh quickly, and I knew they had a, a, a really a, a tough series of missions as they pushed back into the Pesh to include one where uh, – First Lieutenant Dimitri Del Castillo was killed. He's a a, a Yisma grad uh, as well, and uh, I know he died fighting with a hand mic in his hand because they were in contact, uh, calling for help for his guys. So uh, I think we did achieve uh, our our end state. Unfortunately, you know the enemy w- was disrupted in the Kunar River Valley, and they were able to mass in the Pesh. So I think we made a difference. I think it was important to do. I think we made progress, you know, uh, unfortunately that in, in a different area nearby, uh, the enemy was able to mass and, and provide some tough days for the 25th. So I think if we wouldn't have done it, they probably would have had two tough areas they would have had to push into. But I think overall uh, we did achieve what we set out to do. And it was important. And, you know, the sacrifice that our soldiers made meant something. Yeah. Um, I think that's a really poignant note um and I, I think maybe a good one to end on so kevin i just want to thank you again for for taking some time and and uh and sharing your stories with us absolutely john thanks for having me i appreciate it thank you for listening to this episode of the spear the spear is produced by the modern war institute at west point What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.